All right, today, communication studies with John Durham Peters's Speaking into the Air. Now, before hopping into this, a few things to say. This can be found in podcast form on Podbean or iTunes or the best places to find it. I'll leave a link. Um, also, my Patreon is up there for anyone interested in that. Uh, if not, it's worth checking out because I think it's funny what some of my goals are. Uh, but anyways, without further ado, let's hop into it. Or I could ramble for seven or eight minutes like some other podcasts, which would be more fun, but uh, no, let's just do it. But I will say I have a little bit of a tumultuous relationship with this book because John Durham Peters, well, this isn't because of this, but he's a Mormon. Uh, and that is very evident with this book. And I was, I watched an interview with him once where he's, or I read, I can't remember if I read it or watched it, um, where he makes it pretty clear that he, he doesn't try to separate his religion from his philosophy. And there are a lot of things in here, as I go through it, for those that haven't read it, that, you know, might raise some eyebrows. He talks about things like angelology and angels and souls touching or meeting. Uh, and then there are a number of other things that are kind of, um, dog whistles for other Mormons, like other phrases that he uses uh, that are meant to kind of spark a certain reaction among other Mormons, which is annoying to me. Like, it really rubs me the wrong way. But with that being said, it shouldn't... Um, it, it, that I'll try not to have that influence my own reading of this or presenting it here. I'll try to be as, you know, neutral as I can. So what this book is trying to do is to describe many kind of broad phases in the history of communication. So what that inevitably leads or kind of results in is a wide survey of a number of different perspectives on uh, on communication and what it necessarily means, where he goes from, uh, from the ancient Greeks all the way up to the present day, making many stops along the way through, you know, the Middle Ages, the kind of, well, the kind of Christianity of the Middle Ages, um, uh, the kind of spiritual associations of communication in modern philosophy and, you know, all the way up to how we communicate today, which each has its own kind of array of people that he focuses on from Socrates to Jesus to St. Augustine and so on and so forth. Heidegger, Derrida, like it's a really broad. So for him, he kind of gives a, uh, a kind of very broad definition of what communication is just to start out because it sets up the kind of timbre for what how he wants to approach it and he says that it is primarily what reconciles the self and the other communication is what bridges distance between two things between two people so in the introduction you know he's making these claims he's defining what he means he presents his fear and his fear kind of can, can culminate into two different forms. They are solipsism and telepathy, where solipsism is for him a kind of echo chamber. Now, for those not familiar with the term, solipsism means circular logic, where a thing uh, claims to kind of resolve itself by referring back to itself. If you ask someone why they're hungry and they say, because I'm hungry, then that is a solipsism because it doesn't extend, you know, conversation beyond what was already known. It just remains with itself. 
Now for them, for him, that presents a problem in terms of communication because that would present a kind of perfect echo chamber where all you would have there is a kind of self closed off from others, from, from anything exterior to it that it can communicate with. Now what he um, kind of contrasts that with, but still positions in term of, terms of a kind of negative form of communication is telepathy. And that is for him where there's absolutely no distinction between self and other. There's kind of like a, um, a dystopian uh, understanding between the two that doesn't allow, in a Hegelian way, uh, I think it's safe to say, a kind of progress to happen because it gets rid of, in, to borrow from Hegel again, negativity. Because negativity is what allows things to become, allows things to develop. So in saying this, he's trying to imagine what communication can be in a good way. So he writes, the task today is to renounce the dream of communication while retaining the goods. So what is this dream of communication? Well, for him, it's these two things I just described, where a kind of ideal communication would be that no communication would be necessary at all because everything would be like perfectly uh, orchestrated, or it would be a communication that's just like self-fulfilling. That is, it just maintains a kind of selfness with no contact with the outside. So if we think of this kind of vulgarly right off the bat, we might think of, you know, instant communication like social media, um, other forms of instant communication that bring selves and others into very close proximity to one another. Now, Peters's book here is is difficult in a sense to grasp what he is saying because on the one hand he fears that these kinds of negative forms of communication might arise but on the other hand he says that that can never happen and that comes out later in the book I'm kind of prefacing laying out the foundation because he says that there is always going to be distance between self and other and one of the things he says is that you know Angels can, you know, come infinitely close to one another, but like bodies, you know, our, our human bodies can't. We are always going to be burdened by kind of distance. So he moves here into the first chapter to talk about the ancient Greeks, specifically Plato's Phaedrus. Now, for those that aren't familiar, I'll give a quick little summary of it here. The Phaedrus recounts a story where Socrates is approached by one of, you know, his fellow philosophers, um... Phaedrus, so this is, uh, it recounts a dialogue between Phaedrus and Socrates, where Phaedrus, and this is really a quick summary, Phaedrus proclaims to Socrates that he has found the truth of love. And Socrates is like, prove it to me. Show me, you know, tell me what you mean by that. And so Phaedrus has his, wearing this cloak, uh, is looking down into his cloak and he's reciting a uh, text that he has written or, or that he's wielding underneath his cloak. So Socrates catches him doing this and laughs. And Socrates says that there, you know, there's a violence to that, a violence to your capacity to Phaedrus, your capacity to reason. And then Socrates goes on to tell a story of two gods, that is uh, the god of the moon and the god of uh, the sun, the sun god and the moon god, uh, Tamus and Tope where the moon god goes up to the sun god and says, hey, um, I've developed this awesome thing called writing. It's going to make our lives so much easier because 
you know, we won't have to be burdened with remembering things uh, or anything like that. To which the sun god replies, uh, I don't want that. Get that out of here because it'll actually stifle memory. It'll make people numb, essentially. So Socrates uses this to kind of describe to Phaedrus that, you know, writing might appear to be a, a good thing and it might have some benefits, but it, it is instead um, a kind of poison in that it's going to hurt us in the long run, which Derrida takes up in his um, essay on that, which I'm, I'm going to do here at some point and that Peters talks about here. But then, yeah, Peters uh, recounts this to say that in Plato, there's a direct distinction between the written word and the spoken word, where for Plato, he appreciates the spoken word because that demands a presence. That demands a kind of immediacy between someone listening or people listening and someone speaking or people speaking. So he appreciates that because that's a kind of, you know, pure form of communication. Now, at this point, I don't want to say that Peters is like um, inputting a kind of judgment upon this. He's just kind of describing this. So in the history of communication, Plato didn't much like writing. He saw writing as a kind of hindrance on reason. And that in, in uh, Plato's writing, Socrates feared that writing would... Um, it's ironic that Plato wrote so much and didn't like writing. Uh, anyways, uh, Peters recounts that Socrates feared that writing would parody lived presence. So it would kind of stand in for being present. Now, Derrida, Derrida's critique of this is that you know, the history of philosophy is fraught with examples of an appreciation of presence over like distance or over um, the written word, right? Which he dismantles systematically. Now for Socrates, communication was very important. And, you know, as, the, as Plato's own writing adduces, that is what it provides evidence for is that Plato wasn't totally against writing. Like that would be a silly reading. He was opposed to the to writing being used wrongly like writing standing in for everything else because it's you know grounded uh and that's a problem because when something is written down it, it can't adapt and transform into new uh new forms like in a kind of dialectical way it is consolidated it's galvanized so peters attributes to socrates this kind of title of the first thinker of communication because he privileged communication or thought about it, or at least how it should be conducted in order to be effective and what should be avoided when it is being conducted. Now, in contrast to Socrates, Peter's positions Jesus. Uh, so Jesus coming, I don't know, 3,000 years after Socrates. No, not Jesus. 3,000 years before us, about uh, 450, 400 years before Jesus. Uh, sorry. Um, now, whereas in uh, Socrates, Peters identifies that there was an appreciation of dialogue because that's like an immediate presence between, you know, two people in the ideal form. Uh, Jesus, for Peters, appreciates dissemination. That's because Jesus believed himself to have a kind of truth or, or, you know, to embody a sort of truth that was, it was his responsibility to disseminate, that is to spread among the masses. 
So these are two very different forms of communication for Peters, and I think correctly so, because one appreciates a kind of uh, giving and taking, whereas the other, that is Jesus, prefers to just tell. And that telling can allow for a more expansive audience to enter because it doesn't need a response back. It just needs a mass of people willing to listen. So we see with this first chapter a very strong distinction between two forms of communication that set the tone for what the rest of the book is going to do. And it is with that we move into chapter two now. So in chapter two, he asks, what does it mean to think communication? What happens in the act of communication? Well, for him, it's the kind of meeting, although not the perfect meeting, but a kind of approach of two souls, if we're just thinking of it in a dialogic way, or what he calls soul-to-soul converse, which is indicative of a number of different um, kind of traditions, and he gives the example of the early Christian one, uh, British empiricism, 19th century spiritualism, and so on. Now, this idea kind of traces back to St. Augustine, who recognized that bodies were kind of only vessels for souls. And that it was these souls that were communicating, not the kind of vessels themselves, even though they played a pretty integral role. So for St. Augustine, communication was almost the opportunity to circumvent, that is to move beyond the body, which is, you know, corporal with the flesh that, that is it's like a prison. So for him, there was a kind of pure ideal. And that was the, you know, the souls meeting in the act of communication. So there is a connection here between what St. Augustine is saying and um, what Plato is saying. Now, that's no surprise. If we think of Nietzsche for one second, you know, Nietzsche said that Christianity was uh, Platonism for the people, right? So it's like, obviously, there's going to be some similarity there because in this kind of Platonist fashion, there is an appreciation of an ideal that, you know, it's just an ideal that St. Augustine was really picking up on and kind of really giving out to the masses in the form of Christianity. Now, for St. Augustine, and like Peters is picking up on this, angels serve a, or represent a kind of perfect form of communication because angels being disembodied can perfectly map onto one another, having a perfect communication where not, no information is lost, nothing is misinterpreted, or anything. So let's take an example here. If I, and I'm, I think this is probably an example many people could relate to, going to the doctor and describing, and I think I've mentioned this on other episodes, so this could be repetitive, but whatever. When any of us go to the doctor and we're, we're asked to describe our symptoms, and this is a problem that doctors face and they actually try to deal with, is that each person describes the same, you know, what might be the same ailment, the same kind of illness, in vastly different ways. So this kind of thing is gendered in many ways, and it has had a pretty, uh, pretty drastic effects on how people are treated. So that is, that kind of signals to us that communication is messy. Communication between people is never really neat. So the, the Platonist ideas, you know, obviously it's an ideal, can't actually be entertained in, in reality, but, you know, it's still something to think of. Like, is there a kind of perfect dialogue that is possible? 
is there some kind of conversation that can be had where, you know, we somehow manage to circumvent the subjective nature of language? Because when I describe a pain to someone, like a doctor, a friend, anything like that, what that person is understanding is never the same as what I want them to understand. Now, angels, for <laughs> for Peters, on the other hand, are able to actually communicate without the messiness because they are disembodied. They don't rely on language. They just can map onto one another in a perfect way. So this idea of communication as being imperfect, Peters kind of attributes to the work of John Locke, who says that more or less um, communication is the meeting of individuals who are never actually able to meet, right? There's always going to be a disconnect there. Now, Peters appreciates Locke because Locke refuses to lionize angels because angels are, you know, this perfect form of communication that can't be attained. But Peters also has a problem with it because this form of communication, as I've characterized it, that is communication that's always individual, that is, there's always a disconnect between self and other, um, presents a problem for Peters because it is too individual. That is, it doesn't account for what he says are the um, our shared thoughts and that, you know, simply what we know to be communication is, is just sounds that fill the air. He's not satisfied with that. So he's trying to, in a sense, navigate a middle ground between a perfect form of communication, indicative of kind of angel-like communication, and a communication that is never complete, a communication that is always disconnected. So in Peters' words, Locke's idea of communication combines an Augustian semiotic of inner and outer, a political program of individual liberty, and a scientific imagination of clean processes of transmission. So communication, no matter how perfect it gets, will kind of maintain a di difference. But at the same time, it's always striving towards this kind of perfectibility, this angel-like perfectibility. Or as, um, as Peter says in his words, ghosts and angels haunt modern media. And he, with this, he kind of gives birth to a term, I don't know if it existed before this, uh, that he calls angelology, which I guess would be the study of angels as they are understood in terms of a perfect form of communication. And it's from there we move into chapter three now to talk about Hegel and Marx, specifically, and some others. So as he recognizes, uh, for Hegel, communication was to, uh, essentially the task of reconciling subjects with their embodied relation to the world, with themselves, and with the other. So here's another quote now. Uh, for Hegel, the self has no privileged access to itself. It only finds itself post facto or in another self who is recognized, who is recognized as a self in its own self. That is for itself in that it can be seen from another. But that's all Hegelian jargon. So for Hegel, there's always communication going on to some extent between people. And I plan to do the phenomenology here probably in the new year, um, January or February probably, uh, but that'll be a nice <laughs> chunk of episodes. So what, you know, to kind of very briefly describe what he's doing there, he's describing the way that no self, and this goes with almost anything. So like if we think of the self as a person, a self as a, like as science, so science is a 
institution or as a thing uh, or spirit, as he calls it. None of these things can exist on their own. Or, and this is, I think, one of the mysteries of the phenomenology, uh, they can exist on their own. But he just says that that doesn't get them anywhere. Then they are just caught and it's useless. It doesn't do anything for us. It doesn't move us towards what he calls the absolute, the absolute spirit or absolute anything else. So there's always a kind of giving and taking going on in Hegel between selves and others, between uh, science and selves, between, you know, uh, selves and spirit that works or that moves people in some way. It moves things and ideas in some way. Now, I don't know what Hegel's idea of dissemination would be if you would appreciate a kind of en masse um, dialectical formation. Uh, I assume he would because that's what could be understood as a kind of transposition of what he calls the slave-master dialectic, you know, problematic term, but the slave-master dialectic in terms of like it, like how Marx takes it up with like class struggle, where you have entire classes vying against um, other classes. So that actually brings us here to Marx, who has a very clear answer. So Marx takes up Hegel's thought, uh, but he's very clear that, and I quote, he doesn't want to be doing Hegelian junk that is in, just interested in kind of, um, um, my God, interested in irrelevant ideas and that is detached from the real world and real experience and real economic relations that you know govern people's lives so instead of thinking the dialectic in very abstract terms between like spirit to which marx is like what is that like it doesn't doesn't matter no one knows what that is hegel doesn't know what it is it's not there he says that we can actually think of this dialectic in terms of struggle between peoples that we can map historically and that can tell us a lot about the way that history has moved so far and it might give us a glimpse into how it's going to be moving in the future or how it will move so marx was highly for for peters skeptical of dissemination now for him it's not like you have a person standing uh, addressing a crowd or disseminating in that way instead Durham recognizes that Marx attributes this dissemination to money, where he says that the capital performs the function of mediating the kind of a logic of capitalism. So money performs that function, which Marx does not appreciate because it, you know, contributes to false consciousness um, or anything, anything else like that, that, you know, puts people in a kind of state of you know, lack of political action, it makes them generally satisfied with their situation or not, <laughs> depends. So when things for Marx uh, grow to be en masse, then there's the risk of control being imposed by, you know, those that wield, in this, in his case, you know, the means of production. So for him, in Dur that Durham recognizes, just communication, that is, you know, good communication, is personal and authentically mutual and just communication becomes corrupted by externalities and dis and are and is distorted by scale so if things grow too big there's the risk then of kind of wresting people away from their um, kind of connection with others and this is you know for those familiar with marxist 
uh, philosophy know that this is what capitalism does uh, par excellence. It is that which takes people away from each other, what is called, in a sense, primitive accumulation, or what is a constitutive component of primitive accumulation, and throws them into an atomistic, that is, uh, individualized system of competition, uh, vying for scraps that are uh, held en masse by the uh, owners of the means of production. So in response to this, Peters says that Marx is too critical. So Peters doesn't really see much and much useful in Marx just because he completely laments. Um, he completely laments this type of communication or this type of media. That is, it growing to be en masse, growing to be too big or all totalizing. So Peters says that, sure, but does that mean we still can't get anything out of it? Does that mean that it's just totally foreclosed to us or it should be foreclosed to us? And it's on that note that we push ourselves here into chapter four, where he begins to talk about new media. So he says that new media are responsible for shrinking time and space. So there are a number of thinkers that have proposed this from Marshall McLuhan to Paul Virilio uh, that think about the way that media affect people's relationship to time and space. Now, in the wake of all of these communications, Peters maintains that the human, in his words, retained its weight even amid new uh, norms of spiritual communication inspired by the swiftness of electricity. Now, although new media are never going to be able to get rid of, you know, human weight, that is, the burden of the human body on communication, he says that it has another effect. It is, these new media are able to facilitate or to allow communication with the dead. That is because for him, media define and enlarge the spirit world that is populated by spectral beings. So media, therefore, are a way, in a sense, to speak with the dead. So he says that death is essentially less final with these new media. So, for example, uh, he thinks about recording media, where something being recorded by someone now, you know, can it proliferate, can exist long after their death. So if we think about our relationship with people, how much of that today is mediated by so many technologies? So uh, we think about our relationships with our relatives, maybe, maybe we live far away from, you know, grandparents that unfortunately are cl closer to death than we are, um, maybe generally, not to say for sure. <laughs> That's a depressing thing to say. Uh, but they let's just say they might be closer. Our communication with them is often mediated by so many technologies, whether it be on the phone or through instant messaging or anything like that, that afterwards, if we have a trace of those things, or if, and this is a Black Mirror episode in, in a nutshell, if like that voice is recorded on a phone, can we ask, or is it possible to ask, that in a sense they are still there? Because, you know, we have what we had of them in the past. We don't have them being new, but we have exactly what they were. Where he's essentially implying with all of this is that difference between communication between the dead 
and or with the dead and communication with people at a distance is roughly the same thing and it is it is through this that communication with the death because they can't respond that is we might have the recordings of our late um you know a grandparent or relative or, or something like that um might have the recordings of it but they can't speak back anymore so any communication that we can continue with them you know many people continue writing notes to family members you know that are that have died uh leave calls on their answering machine or voicemails send them instant messages in you know with the hope that maybe they'll get it does do these new media allow for that i have no idea i have no idea what you know happens after death but peters is pretty certain that there's a kind of connection there whether it be you know totally um I guess a totally artificial one, yet is still meaningful. It has an effective potential on the person communicating. But but nevertheless, what we are seeing here is a one-way communication because the dead can't respond. What we see then is this resembling dissemination. It is resembling the kind of thing that, you know, Socrates and Marx lamented um, and that Jesus actually appreciated. Any coincidence there? that sees the possibility of one-way speaking with the dead through these new media. And all this is because he's implying that just because we can't get a response doesn't make the communication any less valid, because that is the exact foundation of dissemination, as he described it with Jesus, where Jesus didn't want people to tell him how to do things. Like, Jesus knew. He was the one that had all the truths. Now, he thinks about all this in a kind of relevant way to consider the post office. So the post office for him represents a mode of communication that for him was would, would have been appreciated by St. Augustine and Locke because they were kind of um, societal forms of communication that were, um, you know, publicly accessible, yet individually um, kind of the content was controlled individually. So it would be like two people communicating to one another that is filtered through a number of different avenues, but to facilitate, that serve the end of facilitating that communication. Now, in relation to the post office or anything like that, uh, he talks about dead letter offices, where they, these are places where letters go when there's a, a, a an address that's been put wrong and the returning address is also messed up. So they have nowhere else to go except what they call, what he calls, or what are called dead letter offices, which he says reminds us of the kind of corporality that is the, um, the physicality of letters, where they can appear to die. They are things like humans that can die. And there was a, a kind of whole rhetoric around it that he says affirms this, where dead letters were routinely called miscarriages. So this gives a kind of bodily character to letters in a very interesting way. But yeah, in any way, in anywho, that pushes us here into chapter five. So he begins this by presenting a quote by someone named Maxwell, who says that bodies, when pressed together with great force, may never be in absolute contact. So this is again reiterating much of what's been said about the impossibility of perfect communication. So that for Peters, as he, as he identifies, uh, for the idealist thinker, communication can be, coordin can be a coordinated solipsism at best. That is, that is because there can't be a perfect communication. Any kind of claim to arrive at a perfect communication is only a perfect solipsism, as per the definition I gave earlier. 
So in terms of like mass communication that, you know, might at first glance appear to be getting people closer to a perfect form of communication, uh, he identifies two, you know, broad forms where he says the common, the common carrier uh, form of communication over like, um, over like a network or something uh, was a, had universal access, that is anyone could chime into it, but was only uh, mobilized by a few people, that is only, um, or sorry, I, I got it mixed up here. Common carrier allowed anyone to access the ability to disseminate information, uh, but it was difficult to actually access that reception. Whereas with broadcasting, only a few people had access to the transmission of information or ideas or, or speaking, um, and there was a universal access to it. Sorry about that. And radio, you know, in relation to all of this, was for, or is for Peters, a voice without bodies. So that presented a problem for Peters because there was always a desire, you know, coming out of from Socrates, go, or being able to, we could trace it back to Socrates, for people to have a presence, for people to be connected with one another physically, so he says that radios or other kind of mass broadcasting services would try to compensate for that loss through various rhetorical strategies like, you know, calling calling in or like emphasizing an element of weeness or, you know, illusions of a kind of dialogue occurring where, you know, you say things like, oh, you, you wanted to hear it and this is it, you know, implying that there's a kind of uh, dialogue, there's a kind of conversation going on there. And some other things that were included, like having like laughing tracks put on, or like the idea of there being an audience present that made people listening associate with, you know, um, a kind of a real presence that was there, that was kind of a proxy that was standing in for them. Now, all these were efforts to kind of ward off the idea that the people listening on the other end, that is the people who couldn't respond, that is the people who are kind of disembodied in their lack of presence with the person speaking to them, we're, we're beginning to constitute a kind of mass because that people don't like that. People want to be, you know, their individual self that is embodied and that is not, you know, doesn't disappear among others that are the exact same. So these strategies were employed to kind of ward off that mentality growing. That is the mentality of a kind of mass, uh, kind of massness, which of course, someone like Theodore Adorno that Peters identifies uh, takes up because, you know, he saw these as being strategies to try to convince people that they weren't part of the mass when in fact they very much were. So as Peters, Peters writes, Adorno was suspicious of any attempt to expand the human symbolically or technically. So for him, no auxiliary, auxiliary organs, as Freud called media, could heal the body's displacement in mass communication. They were at best clumsy prostheses to restore a bodily wholeness that may never have existed. So these are just strategies employs, employed, that is the strategy of the laughing track of kind of simulating a presence on the part of the listener, that are intended to kind of instill the idea of, a, of an embodiedness that may not have ever existed, but it's a simulated form and it is by virtue of that simulated form that it comes to take on a kind of reality. And from there, pushes us into chapter six, where he says that more or less speech is unique to humans, whereas communication is not. So animals communicate, like there's no doubt about that. Do they speak with one another? Not to my knowledge, maybe like some 
dolphins, but I can't say for sure that they speak to one another. So communication holds a special role for some reason here for uh, Peters, where he says that in the time of simians and cyborgs, fetuses and the brain dead, angels and UFOs, primitives and smart machines, the dead and the distant, communication essentially has become the very field on which to sort out the place of the human. Because communication might reveal to us what he, what he says. He says how wide and deep our empathy for others can reach. So he sees behind communication a kind of love, right? The basis of any kind of society is, is uh, founded upon communication because there needs to be an association with people that is not just reducible to speech. So in this, he draws a distinction between what he's say, saying and what Alan Turing was trying to prove with his Turing machine. So for those that aren't familiar, Alan Turing's Turing machine or test was the test to see if a robot through speech by you know uh, by speaking to someone could pass for a human and if the robot could pass for a human that is if the listening person couldn't tell if the robot was a robot then the robot passes what's called the turing test now peters has a problem with this because that for him simply reduces all communication to speech so he says that you know we don't see love there we don't see communication as something that is a connection we see it as a kind of you know physical uh brutalist you know act of speaking kind of the pornography of communication where he says that if a lion developed the capacity to speak a human language let's say english we wouldn't understand them because peter says there's so much more behind communication than the act of speaking that you know we often lose sight of and that is often, these are often the things that connect, you know, underneath speaking that is always so stubbornly individualistic and stubbornly uh, fragmented. And it's these things that he's trying to draw, as a, or draw our attention to. And that it is about recognizing these kind of connections that all humans share. And, you know, among animals as well, you know, things that, we, that aren't reducible to speech that are so important. So he says that a full democracy would be trans species it would be transgender it would be transracial it would be trans region it would be trans class it would be trans age it would be transhuman and that what we need is not a stoic willingness to go through the motions that will or sorry i screwed that up we don't need a truth of the self because that doesn't really exist what we need is a stoic willingness to go through the motions that will evoke the truth of others so this is all in the service of maintaining that no pure kind of communication can exist and that it's always a striving towards something. So this is very Hegelian where he says that, you know, absolute spirit cannot be arrived at. In fact, absolute spirit, that is the thing that he uh, writes his phenomen phenomenology of spirit kind of working towards, you know, he gets to the end or before the end, actually in the preface, he says this, um, Absolute spirit is actually the process, is the process of getting there, which is like, like what? Um, but Peters is very much picking up on that, suggesting that it is a constant process in that it doesn't culminate into a single point. But then he says something that rubs me the wrong way. And he says that because souls cannot touch does not mean that the same sentence rests on bodies, which confuses me because... I don't, that seems to be antithetical to his whole argument, 
to suggest that bodies somehow house this kind of pure capacity to uh, meet one another in a, in a perfect way, which is annoys me. And I don't know why he put that in right at the end, because I thought it was good so far. And it seems then he kind of uh, falls back on a metaphysics of presence, right? And I'm not saying he was uh, a Derridian in this book. I'm not saying he was trying to critique the metaphysics of presence, but he was certainly wary of it. He was he was kind of critical of it in that it posited a kind of pure communication. But then he just he then he then he goes off against Derrida, calling him nuts for not recognizing that bodies can have a kind of perfect proximity to one another. And he kind of con- concludes here by saying that presence becomes the only thing there is to guarantee of a bridge across the chasm. Which is like, but I thought I thought no pure communication was possible. I thought it was always like a like process and that what we have to recognize are like things that we can't necessarily know, but that connect us. And that these things are not necessarily physical. But yeah, that that confused me. And I don't know if I just misunderstood the book. I, I really don't think so. Um, but, you know, it's one of those head-scratching moments where I, I was questioning my whole understanding of it. But that more or less wraps it up. Like, for anyone, uh, you know, interested in <laughs> learning more about it, definitely go read the book. But if you have any kind of knowledge about it that I might have overlooked or there's something that I just didn't understand, you know, let me know uh, and I'll try to fix it. But for now, take care.